Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning we thank you again for your word, and we ask now that you would send your spirit so that in this place, as your people, we may hear Jesus Christ, the King and only head of his church, speak. You, the God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, be with us now in the reading of this word, and may it remind us again of who you are, who you want us to know who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this morning we're going to read and continue our study of the Apostles' Creed. So we're going to read from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, starting at verse 5. Uh, it's on page 5 of your New Testament, if you'd like to follow along. But again, as we begin the study of the Apostles' Creed and the line, God the Father Almighty, we read from Matthew 6, starting at verse 5. And whenever you pray... Do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, so they may be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But whenever you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you are praying, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then in this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debt, as we, we also have forgiven our debtors. Do not bring us to the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I don't know if you've heard yet, but I am taking a biology class, right? Part of my continuing ed, turning 40, midlife crisis, all that stuff I've explained to you. But I started my biology class, and I thought I'd, I'd start with just a little reflection on how that's going. So the first day I get there, and it's a community college, and I hadn't really thought through what the class would be like, but I show up, and it's one of those lecture halls, right? So the professor's down, down. We're all kind of in these seating that kind of goes up. And I take my seat, and lo and behold, what happens is this room fills in around me. I'm in the back row, and there are all these, like, 18-year-olds, right? <laughs> and my first response is, I am so old. Um, these, these are people in the world who think that Beyonce is a legend. Um, and maybe you're sitting there going, what's a Beyonce? That's exactly the point. What is a Beyonce? Uh, so there we sit, and they think Beyonce's a legend. I'm still young enough to know who Beyonce is. She's a singer. But I'm also old enough to remember when she was just a Destiny's Child, when she uh, was singing about being crazy in love and putting a ring on it, right? I was there for all of that stuff. And they're young enough, get this, they're old enough to vote. They don't remember 9-11. And I'm sitting there in the back of the row of this room going, wow, I'm going to sit here and be quiet. I do not want to be the old guy that brings all this kind of attention to myself. And of course, then the professor walks in, and I'm pretty sure this guy is younger than I am. So again, <laughs> old. 
Uh, it's a biology class, though, so it's not just the class, it's also a lab. And so this is why I get a little scared, because after that first class, I'm going, what's this going to be like? I remember labs. You don't get to sit in rows and kind of hide in the back. You have to sit at a table and interact with people. Ugh. So I get into the room, I sit down, and thank God, in this version of the class, there's a, another woman who's around my age, whose kids are grown now, and she's going back to school. And there's another woman who is from Russia, and somehow we all find each other on the same table. Surprise, surprise, right? Um, and then the last one who sits down, though, is this 18-year-old kid. And I'm going, what is he doing here? This is the old people table. And then I look around and realize um, he's the only other white male in the room. Uh, there's one other white male in the room, but he looks like he rolled out of bed, threw his hamper, and then showed up for class. <laughs> so, of course, this kid is with us. We're the closest thing to the, the ones that he, he is comfortable with. You know, as we, we begin the study of the Apostles' Creed then, and I kind of come back with that, my hope is again, I feel like saying it again, when we stand and say a common confession, which could be very much that someone new shows up and feels like very much the outsider, that is not our task. Our task is not to show up in these rooms, like me showing up in biology and feeling like the odd man out. We are doing a common confession and a study of it, uh, not to push people away, but because that's the subject of our study. Right? This is our version of biology class. We are learning these things, and it's a study and our devotion. But again, let's just make sure we clear as we go forward with this study that it's not about kind of making people feel outside. And I did, they will be just making me feel like the outside. But you understand that when you walk into a room and you've never been there before, that's what can happen. When it isn't the room that you're supposed to be in, by some natural sort of stance of things, it can feel that way. I remember, it's almost 10 years ago now, <laughs> again, old. Uh, but 10 years ago, as a minister, I took a group of kids from New York to a church thing for a week called Rocky Mountain High that our denomination does, right? It, we go to Colorado for a week. This is more of the, the sin of the heartland does this, but we got the New York kids to go. And I'll never forget that I kind of anticipated they were going to feel like the, you know, the fish out of water uh, experience. And sure enough, there was this young one woman, young lady, uh, about 17 years old, who... She really wasn't much of a churchgoer, right? Grandpa and Grandma went to church, and she got on this trip kind of through that. But she didn't really come a lot. And then she shows up at this great big festival thing where hundreds of kids are going to these worship services. Like, it's a normal thing to do. And they're playing volleyball and interacting, and they're not freaked out at this. And her response was, where am I? that fish-out-of-water experience. Nobody there was trying to make her feel like she was the fish-out-of-water, but she had no reference point for this. She had no idea that this is a thing that teenagers would ever do. So just keep that in mind. That we, we are not here to try and push people out. We are trying to help them understand, including ourselves, and being part of that standing within a tradition idea that we say these things because it is our study and our devotion. And then, hopefully, as we move forward, we have the empathy to recognize how to do that better, to understand it, and then to also make it a place where people are, feel welcome to learn about it. The other thing that about the, you know, the biology class that I would point out is a really 
important thing is this. You walk in and you're a minister. <laughs> it's a biology class, guys. Right? Like, the first words out of their mouth is the word evolution. And, and by the way, as, as a Christian, I didn't grow up in a place where I, had, I was told I had to make a choice to believe Christianity or evolution. And so I walk in not wanting to be that guy as they start talking about what the scientific method is and how do we know anything. Uh, again, I just want to be the guy in the back of the room. But I'm afraid to actually say it because right, I'm waiting for that moment when they find out I'm a minister because I'm assuming they're thinking we need to have that talk. Right? The professor's going to be like, uh-oh, who's this guy? Is he going to argue with me over this stuff? Just another fish out of water experience. And, but if we do want to be empathetic, and I don't want to be that guy, stop trying to find ways to divide yourselves and find the ways that you are not like each other in the room and find the ways that you are like each other. And so that's sort of where we begin today. One of the first lessons I learned in biology class was this about scientific method. Did you know that we never prove anything? Science doesn't prove anything, according to my textbook. All it ever do, does is prove what is false. All it can do is rule things out. It's called falsibility. You set up experiments, and you may not actually prove something, but you can prove something is not happening. So one of the examples I was given was uh, this old idea that life was spontaneous. It's biology class, right? Study of life. So the example was they used to believe hundreds of years ago that life was spontaneous. You left a, a glass of water out and you left it out long enough and things would start growing on the top. Well, spontaneous life, life is spontaneous. And so a, a, a scientist, as the example, put the same kind of substance that would normally grow stuff on the top, but they denied it air and then watched. And guess what happened? Nothing. Nothing happened. You take the lid off and what happens? It grows. And so you didn't prove that something in the air was causing life, but it disproved that life could just spontaneously happen. You get it? Pulsibility. As Christians, when we come and we say God is Father, uh, we can't prove that. You know that, right? We can't prove it. There's a lot of attempts in modern Christianity to prove things, but we can't prove them. Science can't prove them. They also can't not prove them. They can't say that there is no God. They can't say there is a God. Neither can we. But yet, why do we stand and why do we say it? So here's the thing you've got to go. Move from biology and move into our study, our devotion, the kind of way we deal with stuff. And it turns out a lot of these answers were dealt with hundreds of years ago. So for example, um, I take biology class, and in classic theology, what I'm dealing with in biology is general revelation. Two words there. One is revelation. Christians have never thought that they were proving something, that they could apply the scientific method and believe and know anything about God, or that there was a God who existed. What the word they've used in classic theology was revelation. You take upon it, you kind of stand on the idea that there is a God, and then what does that God want you to know about God? That's revelation. And what does God reveal about God? That's revelation. We don't enter into what we do in this room as an act of proof. We do it as an act of faith that the things that we are observing in our lives show us something from God. 
Okay? So general revelation is kind of the realm of biology. We look out at nature. We use our, our senses and our eyes, our smells, our ears. We observe what is around us. And in a general way that every human being could do, we learn something that God is revealing to us. We come into this room and we have what's called special revelation. We have, and most specifically, the Bible where we're told by God something that God wants us to hear. We've had the prophets and those who have been inspired to write it, and we have the Holy Spirit here with us now to understand it. Again, you go, we can't prove any of that. You're right, we can't. We stand on the idea that God is revealing God's self. Can't prove that God exists, can't prove God doesn't exist. But you can stand in this idea of revelation, both out there, you don't have to be afraid of anything that's out there and the things you can learn from it. But here we also are given a special revelation. And here is where the text really does matter. This special revelation. Did you notice what was most important to Jesus in this entire section? He uses the word Father, Father, Father. Go and pray. Don't pray like the hypocrites. Don't Deal with the world like a bunch of Gentiles, but go to your room and pray. And when you pray, pray to Father. And then he says the Lord's Prayer, which we know is the Lord's Prayer, but really, how does it start? It starts with our Father who art in heaven. All the way through this, Jesus is setting a particular kind of revelation, a special revelation that says, when you think about God, what God wants you to think about is God as Father. Now, this is not tremendously a huge new idea. You look into the Old Testament, and we heard this morning in Psalm 103. In that psalm, the one who was inspired to write the psalms back then said, as a father has compassion for his children, right? So the thing, though, is in the Old Testament, there's a few moments when we get God as father. It's not dominant, though. It's there, but it's not dominant. What actually is dominant before Jesus comes along is a whole series of pictures of God for us that comes through special revelations. What they all have in common is they're probably things that in your day-to-day -day life you've met somebody or know something about the world that God is saying, look to that if you want to know who I am. So there's Father a few times in the Old Testament. Way more is the idea of Lord, which we still use. Lord was the one that the Old Testament uses the most. It was the most dominant tradition there about the revelation of who God is. And the picture was, uh, you didn't have nation states in the ancient world. What you had were people who owned big houses and lots of land. And the reason they owned big houses and lots of land was because they also could protect themselves. And so they would create boundaries around their properties. And they would hire people, or sometimes even enslave people. But those people came and worked for the master who lived up on the hill, the Lord. And what they got in return was probably what you need to think about that picture that comes from the Old Testament about God. What do you get from a Lord if you're one of them? Because you might be a servant, you might be a slave, you might be a serf, you might be very poor. But what does being inside the, inside the walls of that lord give you protection exactly the rest of the world might want to come and 
defeat the Lord, take over that land, constantly in violence, uh, trying to take stuff over from each other. But the Lord offered protection. And so in that picture of the master, you would also have, because they're running this big estate, you would have a leader, a head of a household, somebody who is very powerful. They would be the power center of your community. That makes sense, right? God says, actually what God says is, I'm almighty. I'm way beyond anything you will ever understand. But I'll give you this. When you picture your Lord, think of me. And then along the lines, that was the dominant one. There were other ones. There was, there was Father, but also the Lord is my what? My shepherd. I shall not be in want. Again, pictures of leader, protector, someone who's more powerful than you. But there was also ones about rabbi. People would have teachers, people they were wise that they would listen to. And so the wisdom literature of the Old Testament would often talk about having uh, rabbis or teachers or equippers, people who gave you wisdom. Some of the Psalms, a few of them actually also refer to God as mother, right? As a hen gathers in her children and protects them. Protection, again, it was a big idea here. Husbands happen in the prophets. And again, this is an ancient world concept of husband, but they were the protector of the wife. They were the savior of the wife. They, they kept her safe, gave her safety, security, and a good life. So a lot of times in the prophets, you will hear about God being husband. All of them, though, are, again, the idea is, whatever it is that you say God is, it's not really that God is that, but God is giving you an analogy that says in your common life, what you can experience in life, here are the things I want you to think about who I am. So parents, husbands, lords, all of them surrounded around the idea that there is a protector and a leader, someone more powerful than you that can take care of you. By the time we get to the New Testament, we get to Jesus, Lord is still the most dominant one. But Jesus picks up on this and he changes the dynamic for people of faith. He changes that special revelation from just a protector. Because honestly, as good as Lord is, do you know what else the Lord brings with it? Distance. That guy sits up on the hill telling me what to do. I may never actually know them or sit down with a meal with them. They're my employer or my master. I might be their slave, but there is this emotional distance. And then when Jesus has us pray the Lord's Prayer and says, now change that, distance things, still have all the power, all the protection, all that sense of leadership and being in charge over you, but change it to a more intimate picture of you sitting with somebody very close to you, your family member, your father, the distance goes away. And I'm sure some of you have heard this. If you haven't, hear this. When Jesus says, uh, the word father in this prayer, it's not just any word for father. It's Abba. And Abba is the word for daddy. Okay, it's not just the, the, the head household picture. It is that intimate picture of a little kid with the person who loves and takes care of them and plays with them. Abba, father. Jesus says replace. Replace. Or move beyond just the idea of Lord and move into a father like that. Start praying that. 
all these instructions, it's Father, 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 because Jesus is doing that special revelation into something else. The word theologically for it, besides special revelation, is, and this is going to matter two phrases, and they're going to matter a lot as we go through the Apostles' Creed. So start memorizing these words, they're coming back. Uh, one is progressive revelation. Okay? God reveals something in this moment in history because that's what you can deal with. Not that that's who God is, but this is what you can deal with now. And as you learn it, you learn more and more and more and more. And trust me, as we go through the Apostles' Creed and you hear about some of the other phrases, you're, you look at Scripture, it's not that they all happened at the same time. There are old ones and then newer ones. You're supposed to learn from one and move into the next. Lord into Father is progressive revelation. It's not progressive the way we use it politically. It's that process of learning. You need one idea to move into the next idea and then into the next. Another word, uh, uh, another word that has very negative connotations for us, but theologically matters, is uh, condescension. Somebody condescends to you, and you think that's a bad thing, right? It sounds like they're being sort of rude or something. But all it really means, all that word means, is that somebody whose brain is bigger than yours is trying to help you understand something that you can manage. They condescend down to you. God is not just Lord or Father or Shepherd or anything. These are all God condescending, God's almightiness that we confess. God, our Father, almighty, into ideas that we can relate with. So Father and Mother and Teacher and Husband and Shepherd. Now the thing is, and, and here's... The next thing we have to realize is that all those ideas that come from the Old Testament into the New sound great, but the question is, do we still relate to them now? That does matter, because I've actually never personally met somebody who is professionally a shepherd. I get it. It's been taught to me enough throughout my life, but honestly, it's not the most relatable connection I can make about God. I don't actually know any shepherds. Uh, Farmers, maybe. Biology professors, maybe. But not shepherds. Father has that moment. And again, it goes back to feeling like the fish out of water and us hopefully wanting to be a more empathetic community that even if people walk in and go, what is this freak show? We can hold them carefully and gently with these ideas. What does father mean to people in our age? Mother doesn't mean the same thing as it used to because women's roles in our society have changed, which means father might have changed as well. And you can uh, mourn those changes or you can celebrate those changes, but the fact is it's changed. And you might question whether or not if everybody who's walked through this life has not had a father who is the protector or a good leader or somebody who is loving and plays with you and does everything Jesus said, is that still what we should be putting there. Sometimes the tradition needs to change it changes its words. Jesus got that. Lord into Father is a change of an idea. But let me give you this, that as much as we still struggle in our times as we are changing through uh, roles between men and women and what a lot of people experience often as not great dads, here's why I think we still need to stand up and say this word. I believe in God, the Father Almighty. 
and he comes from a, a radio program I heard once. Do you know what the two oldest words are in all of language? Not just English, not just Latin-based languages, but throughout all of human history, what the two oldest words are ever? They've done this. They've gone back as far as they can, thousands and thousands of years, and find any evidence for words that have just sort of carried on through whatever the language is through all of history. You know what they are? Mama and Dada. Do you get that? The, th the theory goes like this. Some of the first sounds we can make as human beings are mama and dada. The first concepts we can get is that the two people in our lives who are sitting there and protecting us and taking care of us, whether they're doing it well or not, the two people we relate to the most as little kids come along with the two most basic sounds we can make. We walk into this, we come into this world and the people that are right there to help us become adults get the first sounds we know how to make and understand, and they are mama and papa. Again, God is condescending to us in a good way and saying, what is relatable to you? And there is not a human being on earth that cannot relate to somebody having raised them and got some kind of name like mom and dad. So as much as things might be changing, some things never change, which is that there is always us as children growing up looking to somebody for the experience of the world that they can give us, the protection and the leadership and the care that all of those words were about. What that means for us is, again, empathetically, anybody walking into the room, and lots of different people can walk into this room. In fact, that is our hope, isn't it? That people from every tribe and tongue of nation will end up in this place hearing about God. And the one thing they can all relate to is Mama and Papa. That doesn't mean that every association they have with that is good. That also begins the task of community empathetically relating to them and saying, what is good about those roles? And what would be good about the role of father? So I guess we could do two things. We could change the words of the tradition and stop saying, I believe in God the Father. Maybe in some cases we need to be a little less strident on that being the only way we talk to God. But also, we need to be empathetic and understand that we need to also do something like the way doctors would talk about, you know, preemptive medicine. It's easier if you never get sick than to try and fix being sick. So maybe the more important thing the church can do is not worry about whether or not it stands up and says God as Father, but make sure that we teach everyone, both men and women, what good fathers are, right? You can do both at the same time. And to that end, I think we stand, we say, God the Father Almighty, knowing that that also brings the sacred task of making sure that as we gather people together, we teach also what good fathers are. And again, it starts from the youngest age. So I'll just close with this thought. When we raise little girls, it's still pretty normal for them to end up with dolls. Right? They hold the babies and they play with them and they get prepared to be what in their play? Mom. Let's start with the idea of what's the equivalent for our boys?
to become good dads because someday they will be the ones that will explain to those little their own little children what it means just by living with these kids what it looks like for god to be father what's the equivalent where do we start to make sure that everyone knows how a little boy becomes a good man and a good father to represent God when they stand together and say this common confession. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you this morning for your word, for the gift of your son, for the gift of your spirit. God, may we be able to lay, up, lay aside the stories and the harm and the things that come with being father that were not good and help us to remember all the things that were good, even as us as men, especially understand that it is our sacred task to represent to the world what fatherhood is, if you continue to want us to call you Abba. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So let's stand and sing our next hymn, Other Fathers Love Begotten. It's number 172.